After running countless scenarios of possible invasions of the continental United States, military strategists have repeatedly concluded our most vulnerable point is the booming eastern Washington city of Spokane. From there it's quick work to dispatch the industrial powerhouses and population centers of the Idaho Panhandle and eastern Oregon and gain control of the strategically crucial Missoula, Montana. It is with this premise that studio executives from MGM made one of the weirdest misallocations of resources in the history of American cinema. Starring one of the Helmsworth brothers, several guys named Josh and uh, Adrienne Palicki, today's film follows a culturally diverse group of underwear models as they defend their homeland from an invading, wait for it, North Korean army mainly because Chinese soldiers would have negatively impacted the film's overseas box office prospects. They form a resistance cell, putting their football-honed team-building exercises and their sandwich ingredient theft skills to work. Harassing the invaders and extracting violent revenge for the deaths of their families, they enact the fantasy resistance to foreign tyranny at the heart of so many recent NRA fundraising campaigns. These are the patriotic freedom fighters that the current generation of Nintendo-raised open-carry ding-dongs imagine themselves to be. The film is a craven effort by a studio to bleed a once-exciting concept for new profit without really bothering to reflect upon nor update what appealed to people about the source material 26 years prior. It somehow glorifies American kids acting as freedom fighters, while those same kids in real life would be sent to Afghanistan to combat kids over there ostensibly doing the same thing. It is just that incomprehensible all the way through. The film was originally shot with the bad guys being the People's Liberation Army of China, but it sat on the shelf for nearly two years while it was sanitized of any negativity toward China using digital manipulation and reshoots and was released in 2011 to a justifiably totally indifferent movie-going public. We're hoping we can trick you into drinking the blood of this movie. Today on Friendly Fire, Red Dawn, the more recent one. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that always makes us hungry, and when we get hungry, we reach for a Subway brand sandwich. Whether you're <laughs> casting pod or engaging in insurgent warfare, Subway is always sure to satisfy. Subway, eat fresh. <laughs> what the hell is happening? <laughs> Look at you, giving away freebies, Ben. A little product placement here on Friendly Fire. <laughs> it's the future of podcasting. This is like Subway in 2010 going like, nothing could hurt our brand. <laughs> I'll, sh I'll show you how little can hurt our brand. We'll sponsor Red Dawn. They make a massive cameo in this film. It's like a plot point. So absurd. This Subway seems more permissive uh, with regard to their soda fountain than any fast casual sandwich restaurant I've ever been to, which is which is like almost militaristic in their unwillingness to give you a water cup. <laughs> this kid takes a bucket to the soda fountain and then like graveyards the entire thing into it. <laughs> it's amazing to think that a franchise restaurant like this would still be operating after North Korea took over Spokane, Washington. Well, nothing, no, nothing stops the flow, the the flow of pure subway to the to the masses. Are you kidding me? It's the most North North Korean restaurant there is. Uh, I'm astonished that the company allowed. I mean, the scene was fill this garbage bag with sandwich fixings, and then and then the eating, the the like later on we see the garbage bag with its like half eaten subway garbage in it. And it just looks like a pile of hot garbage. I mean, there was never a moment where <laughs> yeah. this made me want a Subway at all. Wheat, honey, oat, tuna, turkey. Especially because this film is so bad at showing the passage of time. Like, you can't be sure this isn't three days later. 
right. Like if it were me and it's three days after the fall of my town, I think I'm going to wait. Like I'm not going to eat the garbage subway out of the bag. I'm, I'm not that desperate. <laughs> I could tell this movie was going to be bad when they had a shot of the North Korean flag being raised in the opening sequence that was just really bad CGI of the North Korean flag. Mm. It's like, really? You guys couldn't? Get a camera and go outside and put a North Korean flag on a flagpole. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> that's the backstory to this film, Ben, that it was yeah. supposed to be a Chinese invasion, and then they spent a million bucks, and only a million bucks, to right. CGI all signs of China out of it. It would cost less than $10,000 to get a shot of a North <laughs> Korean flag on a pole. I guarantee it. <laughs> I would hire you for that. Yeah, I'm I'm available. Yeah, is that right? I've got a North Korean flag. Let's put this together. <laughs> <laughs> my, my understanding was that uh, they switched it from China to North Korea entirely in post production. There was no ca- yeah. no camera involved. It was like the movie's done. We're just gonna go in and like actually dub North uh, like Korean over people that had been speaking Chinese. That just blew my mind. And like CG Korean flag patches onto their shoulders and stuff. I was totally gobsmacked, like the innocence of 2012 and the idea of a North <laughs> Korean invasion. And like the, the stern words from a, a President Barack Obama and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton at the time, like, wow, was there ever a time when North Korea was a joke? <laughs> And, and and competent leadership was was talking down to them. Good lord. It was so cringy. At one point, like Thor kind of looks off into the distance and says something to the effect of it was inevitable or it had to happen sometime. <laughs> and 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 the his like gal pal kind of looks off into the distance and they both nod and there's no context for it and then there's no follow up. They're just like had to happen sometime and she's like yeah and i'm like what had to happen sometime that is the main vein of this entire film is like there is no background to anything like our new jed our jed thor Mm -hmm. comes back from uh from afghanistan like we all we know about him is that he's a marine and that's it we don't know what he did over there i think he said iraq too didn't he he said iraq and then and then it was unclear where he was going next because that's that's what it is to be a Marine. The main thing about New Jed, like N-U with an umlaut over the, <laughs> over the U, <laughs> is that he loves Rolling Rock. That's right, Rolling Rock beer. <laughs> the official beer of Friendly Fire and of, of just getting back from Iraq slash Afghanistan Marines. He does hit the Rolling Rock pretty hard. <laughs> Can you make that two Rolling Rocks? Yeah. Keeps trying to get his 16-year-old brother to drink one, which the Rolling Rock people can't have been happy about. (laughs) I don't want to make this whole show about uh, comparing it to the original Red Dawn, but when you bring that up, there was no beer in the original Red Dawn at all, was there? There There was whiskey. Whiskey appeared a couple of times. Yeah, it was mostly deer blood. Deer blood and whiskey, right? That's well, but it was Colorado instead of Spokane. Right. I, could, I couldn't believe this movie was in Spokane, although it, it makes perfect sense, Like, although that didn't look anything like Spokane. It's hard to talk about this movie without comparing it, because it's, like, it, it's definitely like making a, a, a new story out of, a, out of the same premise rather than making just kind of like an updated version of the original movie. But they de- they they have to like have references in there, like the deer blood scene is like a joke about the deer blood scene in the original. It's just like you know when you cover a song, you want it to be an interesting take on that song, or if it's not if it's not a straight cover, make it like a, a an interesting response. Like I thought it would be really cool if they made this movie like the like the liberal wet dream rather than the right wing wet dream where it was just like the North Koreans come in and everybody's like, you know what? Communism is not that bad. It's actually a pretty good system at the end of the day. Instead, it's this weird middle place where it's like, oh yeah, like we're, uh, we're going to go hunt and, and live in the mountains, but all of our, uh, bikini model girlfriends,
friends are coming with us. And, uh, you know, our dad is not that big a shithead. Oh, I was so heartbroken when, like, God, it's not like five minutes into the movie and we realized Jed and Matt's dad is affectionate and cares about his sons. <laughs> like, I know. That was such a disappointment to me. <laughs> when I saw that Jeffrey Dean Morgan was in this film before watching it, I was like, oh, he's going to be the rugged dad. Like, he's going to be the Harry Dean Stanton, and he's totally not. Instead, they get nice dad here. Avenge me! I want to take this movie seriously on its own terms. Um, because it's too easy to just treat this as like a after-school special and rip it a new one. <laughs> um, I, I want to like, I want to just kind of divorce it from Red Dawn, the original, but also just acknowledge that this is a this is a war picture with its own internal logic, and it happened in a time and place, and we just need to think about this movie, and give it the benefit of the doubt. You want to you want to give it that famous friendly fire stink. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I was very impressed with the casting. You know, it had Thor, and it had the kid the kid from um, Hunger Games. Hunger Games. <laughs> And then it had a bunch of people that you knew were either going to die or were going to just be things to uh, just be like human character builders for the other three, the three mains. Right. That's about it. That's about all I can all I can say about it. I had a lot of hope for Adrian Pilecki as Tony. Like I thought that was a fun casting choice. Tony was Jennifer Grey in the old movie. So, like, Adrian Palacki is pretty hard, and I was excited for the idea of her kicking a bunch of ass in this film, but this film disempowers its female characters far more than the original, and I know we got to take this independently, and I know you just chastised me for not, for, uh, <laughs> for making the comparison, but it's, it's hard not to. Yeah. I was, a, I was so bummed. At the storyline of the bratty um, Charlie Sheen, let's just do it. Let's just compare them directly. Uh, I was so bummed at the storyline of the Charlie Sheen character because from the beginning, he is described in everything he says and does as not a team player, as a brat, as a completely unreformable jerk. He never ever, he's got like boo-hoo-hoo problems about his brother He's the worst kind of person. And then he never gets his comeuppance. He goes on a fucked up fire mission to save his, like, to save his, like, blonde sort of nobody girlfriend. He gets a person killed on his own team. And then his only penance is that he voluntarily goes and pouts in the wood for three days. (laughs) <laughs> comes back is completely accepted by everyone including the sister of the man killed who never ever says like never even says one which gives him a what a peace sign she lifts up her hand and gives him a peace sign they were like listen we don't have we're not going to pay you to have any more lines in this movie so <laughs> all all we can do is have you forgive him wordlessly yeah i felt like she was basically playing the character of ben harrison in a contract negotiation just like, you. Just like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And then, and then it turns out. An that, only child. I'm very afraid of conflict, John. It turns out that, that the blonde girlfriend is less than useless. She never does a thing. I kept waiting like, okay, he's going to, he's got to rescue this person. She's going to turn out to be the, she's going to turn out to be the British explosives expert in this film. She's going to have a, a briefcase full of dog turds that blow up. And then she's nothing but a drag, like just a just a nobody. I love it how Jed Thor goes out of his way to tell his brother that, you know, she's going to be okay, man. She's tough. Like, we are given no reason to believe that either before or after that comment. We're also given no reason to believe that the Koreans would take her into special custody, unlike other non-combatant civilians right or maybe they grabbed her because she has special knowledge of her boyfriend who is a a wolverine but it appears that all they do is just move her around in buses like why the hell are they moving her around (laughs) she should be in a shipping container getting waterboarded yeah where are they going to and from 
they, yeah, there right. is no reason for them to leave that football stadium. But there's so many scenes in this movie that have no, like you're saying, like not only no continuity, but they're purposeless. And I wanted to criticize it on this, on the basis of the fact that the bad guys who I cannot see it as anything but Chinese because it makes so little. And I, I read a quote by the, by the director or somebody on the production who was like, well, once, once we realized that they were North Korean <laughs> completely in post-production, it really made the movie really come alive because, you know, finally there was like, it was even more of a plausible threat. <laughs> I was just like, oh man. But so the Chinese, there's only one enemy actor who ever is differentiated from anyone else. He's, it's just like, he is the stand in for the humanity of this entire invading force. And he is only mad. And I wanted to be mad at that, but then I thought back to so many war movies over the course of time, and even ones that we've seen, where the enemy is just a faceless, like right. a, a faceless army of zombies, where they are, uh, they're speaking a foreign language that we're not meant to understand, and all they do is like die. It's such an interesting difference because while this movie does not have the courage of its own convictions, the original really does it is coming from a very specific standpoint and yet the bad guys are human mm -hmm. i guess this like in in reducing the bad guys to two-dimensional shooting targets this movie sort of like loses its its ability to like actually confront the issues it's trying to raise in the way that you could give responsibility for that that first red dawn to milius and its energy to Milius in the way that you've described. Like, I don't feel like this film is Dan Bradley's fault, you know? <laughs> like, how much of the shit that happened to this film happened retroactively, you know, after his work? This guy, this is his directoral debut. He's like a second unit director guy who gets his first film in the big leagues. I thought, technically, the film was really strong. Like, hmm. that first action scene of the parachuters coming in and the plane crash... And the car chase scenes, like, I thought that was all expertly done and exciting and wild. But the story isn't good enough to make all of this action movie connective tissue hang together in any way. It's sceny as anything it has ever been. I'm going to need some ice. Can you bring some from outside? From an action standpoint, I, I really had a problem with this movie because I, I felt every time there was a big action set piece, I was kind of confused about the geometry of it. I was mm. confused about where people were relative to other people. It seemed like always they would be shooting from uh, behind no cover, and yet oh, the bad yeah. guys couldn't get back at them. And Oh, I totally agree with you there, but I, I sort of chalk that up to characters being dumb. <laughs> rather rather than like the blocking of a scene. He's right because there are scenes where they're like ducked down behind the one brick thick cornice at the top of an old building and the enemy in in the turret of a tank is firing an anti-aircraft gun at them and the bullets are going pating 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 <laughs> where that gun would like rip that wall apart. And then there are tons of other scenes where they're in abandoned buildings and people are hiding behind like one sheet of drywall thickness. And, <laughs> and again, like machine gun fire everywhere. And it's just like, pating, pating. Kalashnikov cannot penetrate drywall. And that's like one of the major drawbacks of that weapon. Matt Eckert is the greatest defender of this. He, he gets a scene towards the end where he finally, like, he rescues this lady friend. He's standing in the middle of the street with her, with his AK, and he's pointing it at a tank. <laughs> the only reason for this scene to exist is so the tank can blow a car on top of the two cars that they're in between oh, and yeah. kind of tabletop them so that they can get underneath it. That's it. It's like they're writing these scenes in reverse, right? Like, let's have a car land on top of them, on top of two other cars. How do we get there? Without that car, that car wasn't like a car that was part of a chase scene or in motion at all. It was just a parked car. It was needed for the action scene. And this is an example of why Matt was so unlikable to me. Matt, Matt is an idiot. We're given... <laughs> Which one is Matt? Matt's, uh, Matt's uh, the younger brother of Jed. So the, uh, Charlie Sheen. The, the, yeah. New Sheen. Yeah. New Sheen. <laughs> New Sheen. <laughs> We're given like two minutes of exposition about like Jed's ability 
because he is a veteran, to train this high school band of miscreants into fierce warriors doesn't seem to have stuck with Matt. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Matt's still the idiot he was before basic training. He's such a cowboy. I, I really felt like, well, first of all, I wanted to say about Ben's comment, the geometry, like it never occurred to me until you say that, that of course a fight scene has an internal geometry that you have to communicate. And I was lost in a lot of these battle scenes and it was precisely that, like, wait a minute, they have the, they're up in the, the top floor of this building and they're shooting down into, into this like fish in a barrel turkey shoot scenario. Why are <laughs> the North Koreans there even? Like, why are they just congregating in a hole where, where you can, despite having control of this town where like rebels can just basically go in the back door of any building through the alley which is unguarded, climb to the top story. All the buildings seem abandoned, but like they've been abandoned for 20 years. And then they just have like the perfect vantage point to machine gun everybody. That was, it's interesting that you say geometry, like it, it never made sense. But the, the, the character of Matt, kind of from very early on in the movie, I was like, whose son-in-law is this? <laughs> because this guy is being like propped up as the hero of this movie from the very start. And he is, he is so unlikable and you just want him to take a bullet at some point. And yet he gets, he kind of gets all the heroic scenes. He's the, he's the last man standing. And you know, it's, it's like, how do you have a protagonist that's so bad? It felt like he had script supervision. Like he kept going in and saying, you know, it would make this scene pop. If I was standing in the middle of the street, kind of like a character from the cover of Omni magazine, except instead of a sword, <laughs> I have an AK and I'm just like killing tanks. Like who's, who decided that this kid was going to be the, this kid was going to be the hero. I like, I, I read his bio and he grew up on the upper West side. Like what, how is he the action hero? We've got Thor in this movie. He does not read as an action hero. He also doesn't read as anything like the brother of Chris Hemsworth. Sheen and Sways definitely are plausibly related right. in in the original. And these guys are just like, I'm a guy and you are a guy and we're both white, so might as well be brothers. I think the thing that struck me most in comparing the two films was how successful the first movie was at communicating how hurt all those kids were. They were devastated kids. The, the, the girls had suffered some unspeakable uh, calamity before they were even that before they even joined the troop and it caused them to be wary and mad and quiet and just visibly fucked up in their faces. And we watched every one of the kids go from being just like dumb high school kids to being kind of shattered and fighting from, from a place of like having been emotionally shattered. And in this latest film, I did not care about the backstory, the establishment story of any of these people, like the degree to which their dad got killed or something like just didn't move me at all. I didn't believe that they were, I didn't believe in their shatteredness. Wolverines, baby. They just seemed like the a cast of people that you would see on a Thursday night at Hooters. <laughs> and who cares? Like your dad died. You know what? A lot of, a lot of dads die. Like it just didn't, there, it, there, I had no com- emotional connection to them. And, and, and it really pointed out how much emotional connection I did have with the cast of the original Red Dawn. When uh, Chris Hemsworth makes his kind of grandiloquent speech about like, we're going to fight and it's going to be hard and I'm not going to try and sell it to you. It like, it kind of has like a milius feeling, but then it kind of goes off the rails and he's talking about like, it's so much easier to fight in your own backyard. It's like, what do you know about that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well they, they do establish that somewhat where he says in Iraq, we were the good guys. And I was like, wait a minute, really? And it was like ellipses. But, <laughs> and, I, and I was thinking like, 
in whose estimation other than Dick Cheney's were we ever the good guys in Iraq? Like the good guys, <laughs> how? We didn't think we were the good guys. They sure didn't. Nobody in the world did. And then he says, but in this conflict, we're the bad guys. And so we were led to believe that he had, in the course of being just a grunt in, in, uh, in Iraq, he had absorbed all the insurgent techniques, right? Like they, uh, they very early on knocked over some armored car that just blessed be happened to be full of C4. <laughs> and so for the rest of the movie, without ever having to explain it again, they just had unlimited quantities of C4. To used just to wreak havoc. John, correct me if I'm wrong, but you can't just be any Marine and know how to handle C4 explosive, right? Or is this supposed to tell us more about his his rank and training as a Marine, like through his his understanding of how to use this? I think so. I feel like it's a. I feel like we are because he never identifies his unit or anything about his. You know, like you keep kind of waiting for it, like especially when they meet other Marines later on in the film. And they're like, we're, you know, we're first platoon, like a company Marines mm -hmm. from Camp Pendleton. And, and the Sways character just remains totally silent. Doesn't go like also a Marine. Yeah. I thought that was such a weird choice. Like, yeah. Wouldn't he go? Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, in fact, uh, the same rank as you so uh yeah why are you why did you take charge 49 year old <laughs> former that's, marine this is the reason that challenge coins exist right like there should yeah. be some sort of handshake situation well look, i do not want to disparage any marines li listening to this show but marines are like firefighters the question the, the you know the old question is how do you tell there's a firefighter at your party uh, <laughs> answer he'll tell you <laughs> <laughs> He'll make sure you know, right? A Marine just, does just not go clear, anywhere. Just to be clear, we don't want to disparage Marines, but we definitely want to disparage firefighters. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> but like a Marine, a Marine doesn't go to a subway without explaining at some point that he's a Marine. Like, hey, I'll have a, you know, I'll have a BMT, uh, which is what I used to eat at the PX when I was a Marine. <laughs> hey, let me just fill this bucket up with all sodas. <laughs> <laughs> when you're a Marine, they let you do it. <laughs> but without, without ever saying uh, one way or the other what he was, we're left to believe that he is some member of, like, an elite team of Marines who just happened to be, I mean, the only thing he didn't do in this movie was fly a helicopter. And I kept waiting for him to, to jump in a helicopter and like, how do you know how to fly this? I'm a Marine. <laughs> uh, do you guys want to hear a goof? <laughs> uh, that's basically all we've been talking about. Uh, I handpicked this one for you guys as, uh, as Washingtonians. The police car that Tom Eckert is driving is supposed to be a Spokane police car. Spoke Spokane. Let's. I gotta stop you right there. Spokane. I'm not from Washington, so we pronounce it as spelled. Uh, however, it is painted in the colors and style of a Spokane Valley police car. Oh, see how it is. <laughs> well, the thing is, I could have told you that because I lived in Spokane for a couple of years, so I was just like, this. This film, first of all, is being shot in Michigan. Right. It does. It did not feel like Spokane. You know, Spokane is a is a dry climate, and there are gold mines in the hills, but they're not like covered with swampy ferns. <laughs> it's high desert, right? I mean, uh, it is high desert. Yeah, it's like it's like pine needles on the on the ground. There are pine trees, but it's like dry pine needles. But I don't want to get into that so much as I want to ask why are the Chinese slash North Koreans all driving <laughs> Humvees from the very right. beginning and driving Humvees that it's not like they, it's not like the parachutists landed and immediately stole 900 Humvees. <laughs> yeah. Did they land with a bunch of bumper stickers and then they yeah, right, just slapped just, them onto 
they just CGI'd the North Korean uh, X or whatever on their on these stolen Humvees. But like, the- yeah. well, they landed at the Gonzaga University motor pool, and which was relatively unguarded, and there was just kind of a limitless supply of Humvees there. <laughs> it's pronounced Gonzaga. But okay. (laughs) John, one of the nice things about doing this podcast with you is I know that none of our listeners will ever be as pedantic as you are in correcting me. Uh, the Native American names of the Northwest, uh, even including the ones that are uh, that are Italian names from the original Jesuits. It's all very difficult (laughs) to remember how to pronounce. Uh, Also, it's, it's never explained like it's explained how the electromagnetic pulse disabled all the computers and it's kind of implied that in advance like the lights go out right and it's like why did the lights go out we're not sure and it's kind of implied that the north koreans launched an enormous cyber attack where they hit all the power plants and all the infrastructure that we'd come to rely on by virtue of their hacking skills and that's like the in the in the opening montage there's some talk of that and so the lights go out and we're like, okay, they hit us. Somehow they hit us. But 30 minutes later, an enormous wave of airborne troops jumping out of what looked like between 50 and 100 giant propeller-driven troop transports are invading Spokane, which is five hours from Seattle by car, over a mountain range. Across the Pacific Ocean from North Korea. So that's a long flight for hundreds of planes to make. Especially hundreds laden, of propeller planes. <laughs> not laden, even jets. And they're laden with stolen Humvees. <laughs> like just just the MREs, just the stolen MREs to feed those troops during the 18-hour flight from North Korea. <laughs> Which is masked apparently by a one half hour power surge, which which apparently affected like air traffic control. Even if it were, even if the the bad guys were Chinese with the with the enormous resources that China has, I can't. I mean, the original Red Dawn had this implausible story of like the Nicaraguan army sweeping up through Mexico, but you could kind of squint your eyes. And go like, oh, okay, okay, let's just let's just say that happened. Right? <laughs> but they don't even give us like even the basics of well, okay, the Chinese came through Alaska, and they're really fast. They're like super fast, like zombie fast. So you never had any context for 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 believing even the even the first moment. I thought that the the geography of the invasion that they described was kind of interesting because it's sort of the inverse of what's described in the original. Like OG Red Dawn, it's like the middle of the country has been taken over, but the the coasts are still fighting for freedom. And in this, it's like it's like the North Koreans control Washington, the Russians control the eastern seaboard. A little unclear what's going on in. Uh, my neck of the woods, but it sounds like lots of uh, non-nuclear tactical weapons got launched at American cities. There you go, Ben. It's coastal elites Mm -hmm. to uh, defend the country. Like I implied before, I mean, like, come on, like, we're into this stuff. Communism? Bring it on. I'm ready to collaborate. I totally understand the financial reason for repainting the Chinese invaders as North Korean invaders, but why weren't they Russian? Why weren't they the same enemy as we got in the first film? We get one Russian guy, a Russian Spetsnaz guy in the Blue Beret. I sort of thought that the film would pivot into making him the heavy, and then he just sort of disappears. You get a couple shots of him, like, driving a Humvee around, like, chasing down the gang. Like, that's all you get. Spetsnaz are so interesting, (laughs) as <laughs> as military people like i don't know if you've done any any reading about what their training is like but it is totally fucking bug nuts it's incredible like give me more spetsnaz well it's incredible because the russians like when when american special forces are being trained they're really they're given that kind of training like okay now we're going to fly helicopters okay now we're going to leave through a secret hatch in a trident submarine and we're going to 
like James Bond underwater for an hour using rebreathers that are made out of Coke cans. Like, <laughs> like our special forces have all this tech and the Russian special forces are trained like, all right, you're going to live in a hole for a week and we're just going to sit outside and throw rats in and you have to kill, you have to kill every rat and you have to kill it with your bare hands because we don't have knives. And so those guys end up being so hard, but they can't fly helicopters. They're, they can't leave submarines. All their submarines sank. All of their training is so foundational in a really fun way. Like, the idea is if you can teach a Spetsnaz soldier to jump over a fence while throwing an axe at a target and, like, while doing a backflip at the same time, he will figure out how to make a rebreather out of a tin can <laughs> and, and then leave a submarine through its emergency hatch. Like... Some of this shit is amazing. They're breaking concrete blocks that have been lit on fire with sledgehammers that have been stacked onto their chests. Why do they do that? <laughs> There's no reason. That's never going to happen in war. Right, but the idea of being able to withstand something that's like right. that as, as being a form of preparation for anything, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, but my point, my point is like they, they introduced the Blue Beret in this film and they give him nothing badass to do. He should be a badass. He did. He was the one that stuck the kid with the, with the pen that implanted a, uh, a tracking device. He should have killed him with an axe, John. Well, no, because that's how they found. That's how he should have. He should have chopped, chopped a cinder block with an axe, right? And then held up a chunk of the cinder block and waved it in the kid's face and said, "This could be you." But but uh, but it gave that kid that got tagged. It gave him the one truly heroic moment in the in the whole film. The one moment of sacrifice. The one moment where you believed. The look on his face, like yeah. he he had a choice to make, and and an implausible choice because they're like, <laughs> he said, "Give me something to dig this thing out of his butt cheek with," and the kid from Hunger Games said, "You know, with what?" And he's literally <laughs> he's literally standing there in a vest bristling with knives. Like, what are we gonna use? There's just no way to get something that's one inch under somebody's skin out. That's a great point. Like, fuck that guy, too. Like, speaking of people who aren't team players, like, you could try here. Yeah, this you is really my could. best friend, and our choices yeah. are throw him down in the dirt and carve up his ass right now to get this little <laughs> thing out. And, you know, we're getting shot up right and left, and all of these bullet wounds are just getting stitched closed like it ain't no thing. I think we can probably stitch up this guy's butt after we get to a safe place and take this <laughs> take this little pellet out and nail it to a tree. But instead their reaction is we got to leave you behind, man. But he he makes that decision himself. They're all looking at him like, "What do we do?" And he's like, right. "Just give me your gun and I'm just going to stand here in the middle of the road and stand off with these dudes." But he actually had some emotion on his face and you for a brief second if you again squinted your eyes and pretended not to know that there was this, there was a better solution to this problem. There was a little bit of like, oh, I get this kid's plight. Like, would I do that? Would, would my friends do that to me? Like, it was the only second in the film where I was within 100 yards of being moved. John, I would totally stab your butt. I know you guys would. Like, and you don't even, <laughs> you don't even want to, right? It wouldn't, it's not a thing where you're like, give me this knife, I'm going to get him. You'd do it because out of love. Also, like statistically, you need Daryl on a gun. Like you're so outnumbered here. The idea of just giving him up and losing the number seems insane to me too. Well, and he proved himself. I mean, I guess he proved himself that he that he could shoot a gun. I mean, it's he proved himself when he saw his mayor dad. You know, sitting down there for the speech, he was ready to shoot his own dad at that point. He was ready to join the Dead Dads Club. You saw that look on the dad's face when he looked up and realized, like, oh, shit. Yeah. Daryl's dad, uh, Mayor Airset Steve Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> that dad, like, you get less of his motivation, and he seems really like he's out there kind of under duress on that days when they're planning that big attack. I wanted to know more about him. 
I completely agree, and nothing against uh, Edwin Hodge, who plays who plays the mayor. But what was Ernie Hudson doing? Like Ernie <laughs> Hudson picks up the phone. Get him in this movie. I hope you folks have lots of money. I I would also like to point out that of the team, only two people die. One of them is yeah. the Mexican dude, and one of them is a black dude. Well, for for the first several. Uh, First several hours. This oh, movie's right. like six hours long, right? <laughs> right. For the for, for they those are the only two red shirts that kind of just take a bullet and we mourn them for one and a half seconds. Yeah, I totally agree. But in in the last movie, it was just like the black history teacher walking out and getting <laughs> was the only filled person, with lead. The only person of color in the entire film that wasn't a bad. Yeah, guy. that's true. R.I.P. Mr. Teasdale. <laughs> They had worked themselves up into a pretty good frenzy. The MacGuffin device is located in the police HQ, which is like a very opulent police headquarters in Spokane. I was very impressed by by its rich mall sort of look to it. (laughs) Well, Spokane cops uh, really took advantage of that whole seizure law where they would bust drug dealers and then take all their shit. And in this case, one of the drug dealers owned... Like a Senate office building. The uh, <laughs> this police station has a Kenneth Cole inside it. <laughs> oh, that's a nice. That's a nice khaki pant. They, they've got to. They got to go in. And they've got to get the MacGuffin device, and the shit breaks down pretty quickly once they get inside. Uh, they end up killing the bad guy inside the office of Jed and Matt's dad. And then, like, tearing his name tag off of his dad's name tag. Oh, yeah. As a, as like office justice. Of all of the hysterically implausible scenes in this movie, the most implausible is that he, like, winds up scrambling for a weapon underneath his dad's desk and happens to know the code to the gun locker. Yeah, knows it, knows it where he can, he can punch it in under duress in one second without being able to see it. Like, you need to establish the dad drilling him on that yeah. at the beginning of the movie in order for that to make any sense at the end of the movie. Listen, son, if you are ever in in my office during a siege <laughs> scenario, I want you to know there's a gun under my desk and here's the code and do this over and over and over. <laughs> the part that was the most hilarious to me in the scene was when uh, the Koreans drive a tank into their own police headquarters like it's the basketball game from the Make Em Say Uh video. <laughs> At what point is your is your war so lost that you drive a tank into your own HQ and start shooting tank artillery inside it? That is nuts. <laughs> there are six people in my police station. Tear it down! <laughs> Someone save the pants. <laughs> I still think the most implausible thing is that this occupying army would not secure the high ground at any point. They're they're in an urban environment and they never think to go to the top floor of any of the buildings that are overlooking all of their sites. Like, where are those bullets coming from? The scene they cut out was of Erica extolling upon them the need to take the high ground. Erica secretly <laughs> the military tactician of the group. <laughs> I drive a 1999 Ford Mustang, guys. I know all about this. I think that was one of the great scenes where at the very end of the film, they had rigged up a, ni- a 99 Mustang with a minigun out of the sunroof. <laughs> and, and watching it, I was like, every first of all, the only people that went to see this movie also owned 99 Mustangs. Right. right. Yeah, it was actually, they, they checked in the parking lot before they would issue your, your ticket, right? Yeah, and this was a thing where every one of those guys had dreamed at one point of a minigun mounted on the sunroof, and here it was, like the ultimate, the ultimate like jizz moment for them all. Like, <laughs> yeah, the Mustang ends up playing a... A key role in this film. They end the, like, right before that is uh, Josh Peck doing the same speech, the same bad speech that Hemsworth did oh, yeah. at the beginning of the movie. And it really just drives home how little charisma he has. Because he's just, he's just so dead-eyed and, like, it doesn't read as, like, I'm 
I'm like wrung out from fighting this war for such a long time. It reads as like, uh, I just don't know how to inspire people. And maybe I'm a sociopath also. <laughs> I Do you think the movie is better if Matt is either cast differently slash better or if or if the actor who plays him gives a different performance? I think so. I think so, too. There's sort of a lot of weight on this character to make the thing succeed. Like, you think this is a movie on Chris Hemsworth, but it's not. It's really mostly about Matt. Yeah, I was looking at IMDb, and this movie was supposed to come out in 2010. Mm -hmm. And Hemsworth didn't have a ton of credits under his belt at that point. Uh, Whereas Josh Peck was like a, a big child star. He's somebody's he's somebody's bro- or son-in-law. I swear to God, there's no way that this kid just got randomly cast as an adventure hero and then <laughs> completely supports this. I mean, he is the star of this movie by any other reckoning. Like right. He's got to have had some sort of... The second piece of trivia about this guy on IMDb is that he has been doing stand-up comedy since the age of eight. Oh, no. (laughs) Let me tell you a little bit about myself. I'm the son of a single parent. I was born during the Great Depression. My mother's. So I, I don't think that casting this guy differently would have changed the movie very much because I, I realized about three quarters of the way in that this was effectively a fast and furious movie. Mm. It had kind of that same casting vibe where everybody in a fast and furious movie is the broadest possible caricature of a kind of person. None of them are likable or engaging. They all are capable of superhuman feats Everybody drinks beer by holding the bottle right at the very top with just their three fingers. (laughs) Right. They all are like, oh, I was a car mechanic, so I can throw a knife a hundred yards and stick (laughs) it right between a guy's eyes. Like those Fast and Furious movies are part of a style of movie making, like anti-James Bonds in the sense that the characters have no suavity at all. They're all meant to be... Right, nobody is charming. No one's charming, no one has an education, no one learned anything except through the <laughs> school of hard knocks of like street racing. It's communicating this whole world we live in where people wear sweatpants on airplanes. Like we have lost any sense of, of believing that an education is something preferable to just being a tough, hard tatted up grease monkey and this movie just felt like a really really weak sauce second cousin of that style of thing where it's sort of like they don't even compel me with their my dad's my dad's a cop therefore it only takes me a 30 second montage to learn how to throw a knife 100 yards (laughs) i mean i think that there's like this kind of thinking in hollywood right now it's like okay this is a franchise this is a this is a property that people already have a relationship with like these fast and furious type movies are doing so great and it winds up being such a spectacular failure because it's got no soul i mean at least the first Fast and Furious movie is like something, you know, <laughs> like they're, they get more and more popular as they become less and less of a thing. Yeah, right. And so there are so many leaps in that premise. The number one being that any millennial has ever heard of Red Dawn or if they had watched <laughs> Red Dawn would get any aspect of it. Like it just doesn't seem... It doesn't seem likely that this is a big VHS hit with 19-year-olds who have never seen The Godfather or any other film, right? But somehow this is the one that's like, dudes, you got to see Red Dawn. Like, not 2001, not Aliens, but Red Dawn. (laughs) Listen, I didn't really have to up my street cred at all. That's true. The subway scene I thought was fun in a in a smirk kind of way. You got the fantasy of stealing familiar food and taking it back to your to your mine encampment. 
But uh, this film makes a fatal flaw during this scene, and that is the playing of a Credence Clearwater revival song during. And <laughs> I strongly believe that like that is the easiest shortcut from soft to hard in a war movie. You can't just play Credence in a war movie without like co-opting the serious Vietnam vibes. What did you guys think of of the use of Credence in this film in that way? I thought that might have been its biggest mistake. all they needed was yeah fortunate son while some Hueys landed in slow motion yeah well Credence also has been now taken completely out of time and is used I mean there's only so many Ted Nugent songs that you can use in your in your jingoistic conservative like shoot 'em up movie (laughs) you gotta find some other shit that sounds like America and Tom Petty would not let you near his music for this movie. And so what sounds like America? I mean, Aerosmith? Ooh. <laughs> like what is it? What are you going to what are you going to use that communicates like we live here? Pass me the doja, make them say, uh. If there was ever a time for a rage against the machine song it's probably oh, man, no. right? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, I won't do as you tell me. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> you never hear rage in any of these movies. It's probably because they just don't license their music like that. No, they Rage don't. Against the Machine receives request to be to have their communist song put <laughs> yeah. in the new Red Dawn reboot. <laughs> new, new thank you. <laughs> but if there was a Rage Against the Machine song in this movie, it would be the only exciting moment in the film, right? I mean, it would be the only moment where you're like, yeah, I'm into this movie all of a sudden. It's true. It would overshadow all the actors. It would be like uh, it would be like the Who in the Rolling Stones circus movie from 1968. Like they would end up not being able to release it because the Who stole the show. One question I failed to ask in the last episode of Red Dawn that I want to make sure I ask this time around is. What is your go-to bunker meal? What is the can of food that you covet and seek out when you go into town? I know what mine is. I know what mine is, too. Probably some fancy coffee. I feel like I'd really miss fancy coffee if I was up there in those mountains. Oh, man. That's a pretty good call. I didn't think about the coffee thing. It is. I, I, I wouldn't have thought of that either. But, yeah, we would need to fill up garbage bags with or buckets with all the coffee that we could get. Can you imagine being up there and like every morning sort of like, ugh, no coffee again. Yeah, like I want to be cold and tired. I'd even grab those Starbucks cans of like sugar milk coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Better than nothing. Before you said coffee, I was going to say just Hormel chili or uh, or cold SpaghettiOs. I love both of them. There it is. There it is. Cold SpaghettiOs because you do not want to eat a cold can of chili. I speak from experience here. Hmm. Um, Too much coagulated fat. You stick a wick in it and you got some candle power there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a scented candle that's, uh, that smells like a, like a uh, an abattoir. You want to turn your cave into a man cave? That's the scented candle for you. <laughs> but cold SpaghettiOs are in some ways the ultimate food. I think cold SpaghettiOs, I eat cold SpaghettiOs at home, standing over my cold stove. I will open a can of SpaghettiOs and just eat the shit out of it because they're so I good. I've never had SpaghettiOs, I don't think. Oh, man. I grew up on them. And then when I went to college and, and bought my own food, that was almost exclusively the canned food that I hoarded. Man. And one of the only canned foods that they had in the student store. They, they knew their market there. <laughs> I mean, ramen. Ramen is easy to make if you want that, that excellent like MSG high to use to shoot the baddies. Or the goodies in this case. <laughs> Should we give this movie a rating? Ben, I've been thinking about what the rating system could be for uh, 2012's Red Dawn. I think it's pretty obvious, Adam. It's uh, For me, it's a rating of one out of five uh, 1999 Ford Mustangs. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think it is? I think it's one, one out of five five dollar footlongs. <laughs> exactly. One out of five BMTs in a garbage bag. All right. All right. One out of five sweet onion chicken teriyaki <laughs> footlongs. Uh-huh. Uh I'm giving I'm giving twenty twelve red dawn one 
out of five six-inch Subway sandwiches. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to give it one Italian sub and half a meatball sub. Mm. There's some capable filmmaking here. It's there just, is. Uh, it's just a mess. I mean, like, there's even, like, editing stuff that is just, like, really egregious. Like, they... They rig up that bomb in the garage, and then, like, a whole bunch of scenes go by, and then some guys are standing outside that garage later after, like, a big, long montage when they blow it up. And it's like, you know, movie, that we can see that garage in the previous scene, and we know that they rigged the bomb <laughs> then. Like, this is not a surprising or interesting edit. It just exposes that you had a problem, and this was the only way to fix it. <laughs> Poor Dan Bradley had the chance to Alan Smithy this movie, and he didn't take it. I wonder if he wishes he had. <laughs> well, of course he does. This was his first big movie, and uh, and he didn't want to fuck it up. So he didn't take any risks, and of course he fucked it up. I feel like I have seen some movies. Like, for instance, the one where Johnny Depp is a rare book dealer who ends up stealing an ancient tome that allows him to conjure Satan and then halfway oh, yeah. through, halfway through, he can fly, and, <laughs> and then he ends up somewhere in the south of Spain in a satanic ritual on top of a castle. Like that movie was so bad. <laughs> and in light of the fact that there are movies out there that are that are so much worse than than this movie in terms of of just being hateful movies. When you walk out of that film, you're like, that money could have gone to the homeless. Like <laughs> every, like movies that are such an assault. I feel like I have to give this movie two meatball sandwiches eaten in the bathtub at two <laughs> o'clock in the morning after smoking a really furry bowl of weed that you traded a guy at a bus stop like a 64-ounce Mountain Dew for. <laughs> that is too specific to not have been an actual thing that happened to you, John. <laughs> long, long ago. A different life. A yeah. different life. <laughs> two meatball sandwiches. It was one of those specials where it was like two sandwiches for five ninety nine, and I was like, two meatballs. I sure would <laughs> like to have met that John Roderick. It's the middle of the night. Two meatball sandwiches? That's disgusting. And I was like, I'm disgusting. I'm disgustingly stoned. And this I is rock bottom. A, I have access to a bathtub. Like, step aside, sir. I think it's time for everyone's favorite segment. It's Who's Your Guy? The part of the episode where we select the person that most embodies our own spirit i guess in the film <laughs> the person we ride for yeah uh ben as you were watching red dawn did you come across a guy i did not not a no one guys. <laughs> no i i really like i was looking i was not not looking i just it's just adrian pilecki because she was fine <laughs> she was like maybe the least worst character I love that her entire backstory is like Applebee's Barfly. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> That's all you know about her. <laughs> Everybody at the Applebee's knew her, though. She yeah. walked through that place like she owned it. Yeah, grabbing fries off of people's tables? Wow. Wouldn't you let her grab your fries? I'd let her stab me in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> My guy is Ratfuck Pete. <laughs> Here's why. Uh, early on in the film, like Pete survives maybe 30 minutes in this movie. Ratfuck Pete is part of the gang in the beginning, but he steals the handgun out of the airstream. He licks a shot over Jed's head at the, at the approaching Humvee. He steals food and then rat fucks him out of their secret hideaway. Yep. Guys, this is exactly what it felt like recommending this movie to you. <laughs> it feels like I really fucked you over. And uh, I'm, I'm ready for my house to blow up <laughs> in revenge. Awful. Awful. John, what about you? Do you have a guy? Well, yeah, my guy is pretty clear. It's the 49-year-old former Marine who actually does seem a little bit war-weary, who comes in three-quarters of the way through the movie and basically is from then on, uh, up to that point and from then on, the only person to whom my eyes are drawn like i wanted him to take over he did take over 
Like that would never would have happened in Red Dawn the original, right? They get a they get a, a F fifteen pilot, mm-hmm. at, and still Jed is like the leader of the gang, right? The F fifteen pilot does a couple of scenes where he's like, "All right, we're going to flank him on this side and flank him on that side," and and the kids are like, "What's a flank?" And he just rolls his eyes and then <laughs> basically like goes, "All right, Jed. I mean, I can't. There's nothing I can do with these kids." And Jed's like, "Wolverines!" But in this movie. <laughs> The Marines show up and then the sergeant, you know, the like gunnery sergeant dude who absolutely, if he is still an active duty Marine, would have to be like the top gunnery sergeant in the Navy because how the fuck are you 49 years old and still like (laughs) you got like four stripes, right? I mean, this guy is like a heavyweight. But from that point on, I was like, I don't want to do, I don't want to watch these kids like do acrobatics. I want to watch this like beaten down old old gunnery sergeant like waging this ugly insurgent battle and i I just identified with him he had a gray beard he didn't want to do any big jumps he was like oh god i gotta he had the self-control not to hit on uh young erica right which which is a place that this film decided not to go smartly right it was just like no these guys are just here to do a job they kind of want out of here and they don't like these kids very much so that was my guy and i was pretty into it i was pretty into him i really want i i want red dawn 3 to be about that guy (laughs) (laughs) because this is again the story of like well our the the marine corps has been so fucked up because he's like what used to be camp pendleton implying that at some point the north koreans had enough resources to also destroy all of the military bases in southern california like what we have now is to Camp Pendleton what like a Walmart fleece blanket is to a real Pendleton blanket. <laughs> but the but the Marines are like we need somebody to go behind enemy lines and link up with these rebel these this this rebel base. The thing that was so silly about that was like it kind of implies that the Wolverines are the only resistance group operating in Washington state like is that really plausible? No, I mean, I, that, in 20 minutes, I would have a group of indie rockers fighting in a, as a resistance gang. Okay. <laughs> Washington State is like any American state. Everybody has a gun except for the 25 people that work at the University of Washington. I would be collaborating because, you know, communism, just not that bad. Like, not the terrible thing that we have been sold. Yeah, you would. You just would be so aver- averse to conflict that you'd be like, sure, <laughs> I'm sorry that we had a country. Like, what do you need? Yep. Do you need like me. any? Do you need any videographers? <laughs> <laughs> Let me see the Lenny Reifenstahl of uh, of your occupation. <laughs> uh, guys, what are we watching for the next episode? Oh yeah, I forgot about that part. It's been an entire episode since we did that. How about you have me not suggest what the next film should be, and instead we, <laughs> instead we go back to the first strategy. Talk about your all-time backfires. No kidding. <laughs> Gentlemen, we have a list with 53 war movies on it. Uh, John, do you want to pick a random number to determine what our next one is? 19. 19 is a 1989 Civil War movie directed by Ed Zwick. It is Glory. Adam, you put this on the list. This might be one of the first war films someone of a a student age ever gets to see, right? Like in the context of of a school environment. Like I know that's when I saw this film for the first time. They show it in in American history classes, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's where I saw it and uh yeah. really stood out to me as a as a really great and powerful war movie. I really loved it. And like sort of surprised to have seen it in school. Like there's, it's fairly graphic as war films go. Wow. Have you not seen it, Ben? I think I saw it. Uh, I think I remember seeing it on VHS back in the day, but I don't remember much about it. Well, there's a scene that I really think you'll like where uh, Matthew Broderick's general character he, he puts a dummy in his pup tent, and when his troops go to wake him up, uh, they think he's just sleeping in there. They pull back the flap, and there's a, there's a baseball trophy yeah. providing a counterweight to make it roll over. He, he found one of those old-timey record players with the big conical speaker, and it's playing uh, snoring sounds. 
It's super loud. It's great. This is a Denzel picture, right? Yeah. Do love me some Denzel. Right there, we get the Denzel stamp of quality. He's yeah. gonna he's gonna like grimace his way through this movie in a way that that makes you feel feels. Wow, I had forgotten Andre Brower was in this film. Hell yeah, Andre Brower's the best. Well, that'll be our next picture, and uh, with that, for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Benjamin R. Harrison, and John Roderick, and it's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music, and our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. If you want to continue the conversation on social media, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, and John is at John Roderick. You can also join the discussion over at the Friendly Fire Podcast subreddit or the Friendly Fire group on Facebook. Please support the production of Friendly Fire by going to MaximumFun.org donate or by leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. We'll see you next week. Listen to me. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.